Hey, y'all, we've got a seriously exciting announcement to tell you before today's show. Starting tomorrow, we're releasing a very special series of episodes in Stitcher Premium. Every week, for the next 12 weeks, we're going to bring you a pep talk. We've lined up some amazing, brilliant, hilarious unladies to deliver pep talks on the big topics we need pepping on. Like weddings, losing your job, breaking out of the gender binary, and coming tomorrow, Jessamine Stanley on embracing swimsuit season. Do not miss these pep talks. They're only going to be available in Stitcher Premium. So sign up now at stitcher.com premium and use code unladylike for a month of free listening. That's stitcher.com premium with code unladylike to find our pep talks starting tomorrow. Okay, on with the show. When we condemn women for using profanity, we are absolutely intentionally ignoring the violence and the profanity that patriarchy subjects women and girls to. And instead, we are punching down by insisting that we focus on the words and the profanity that comes from those most affected by patriarchy. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And y'all, we are earning our explicit podcast rating today because we're getting to the bottom of a little mystery that emerged right here in the Unladylike studio, and we kind of couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Okay, so to pull back the podcast curtain for a sec, whenever we interview Unladies for the show, we always end by asking our guests the same very on-the-nose question. And the more folks we've interviewed, the more we heard one particular answer. We want to know, what is your most unladylike trait? I curse like a sailor. I cuss like a sailor. I curse like a sailor. I do think that it is the spice of life, you know? It's like the seasoning that you add to a delicious meal. If I have to give a, a public speech at the United Nations or something, I have, to th- I have to consciously think to myself, don't cuss. Well, unladylike is definitely the amount of profanity that I've used in front of my child. I speak up and champion the vulnerable, and I usually do it with a little bit of cuss words. You know, I'm not like part of my French. I'm like, oh, this is my French. (laughs) Receive my French. I'm going to start saying receive my French. That was comic Francesca Ramsey, artificial intelligence genius Heather Roth, bad mom Amanda, sexual assault nurse examiner Trisha Sheridan, actor Amanda Seals. Caroline, this is just a sampling. Y'all, we've seriously heard so many variations on how unladylike it is to swear that we knew we had to investigate. And Caroline, I've got to tell you that this episode's guest kind of blew my mind with just how much unspoken fuckery is going on when it comes to gender and swearing. First up, we're hopping on Skype with Australian linguist Dr. Kate Burridge, who knows pretty much everything you'd ever want to know about why we curse and what makes bad words just so bad. Then we're getting pumped up on the power of profanity with feminist journalist and author Mona El-Tahawi, who you heard at the open of the show. I don't give a fuck that it upsets you. I'm very glad because my mission in life 
is to destroy that fucking patriarchy. It's all to figure out, why is cursing so effing unladylike? And how does it affect how women get heard? Obviously, feel free to curse, because that's what we're going to be talking about. (laughs) So I don't have to tiptoe around. I can't actually use the words, can I? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Meet Kate Burridge. She's a historical linguist and professor at Monash University in Melbourne who specializes in taboo language. We wanted Kate to help us sort our fact from fiction when it comes to the unladylikeness of swear words and how we use them. What's funny, though, is that Kate ended up studying these forbidden words kind of by happenstance, because she grew up in a household where if she said so much as a cripes, her parents would threaten to wash her mouth out with soap. I was the the queen of euphemism, really. I actually wasn't much of a swear. I was a golly gosh, goodness gracious kind of swearer. (laughs) Kate started out studying euphemism, which eventually led her to bad words and her research partner, Keith Allen. Together, they've written multiple books, including Forbidden Words, Taboo, and the Censoring of Language. But for golly gosh goodness Kate, becoming an expletives expert in academia took some getting used to. Oh, well, it was interesting. The first time we got up to talk about these words, I said to Keith, you know, I can't say them. You know, I've never said them. And to actually have to say them in front of a public group was extraordinary for me. So he actually poured me a large glass of vodka, which he said no one would be able to smell. <laughs> so I sipped this glass of vodka all the way through the lecture. By the end, you know, I really had experienced the, the liberating effect of the, the well-placed expletive. You know, I haven't looked back. <laughs> It is interesting, Kristen, that Kate was uncomfortable swearing, but her male counterpart was not. Mm -hmm. And we're going to dive into the gender dynamics of cursing momentarily. But to start, we wanted to know why the hell humans curse in the first place. Kate says there are four main reasons. There's a certain sort of swearing that is, is most usual, and that is social swearing. Okay, Caroline, so despite profanity's bad reputation, the number one way we use it is to actually get along with folks. Yeah, like, think of talking to your friend about the awful thing your fucking boss did the other day. Or throwing out a teasing, fuck you. No, fuck you. (laughs) It is a kind of verbal cuddling. And the more you like someone, the greater the swear word, the greater the obscenity. Um, there's also this, I suppose, what people think of when you say swearing is the kind of you've, you've hit your thumb with a hammer or you've, you've pressed the send button and that email's gone off where it shouldn't have and <laughs> these words just bubble up, don't they? And that brings us to our second kind of swearing. What's called expletive swearing. So swearing to let off steam. Uh, and it's very effective because violating a taboo is a very good way to uh, you know, give an emotional release. I just like to note that in 1901, a researcher called this type of profanity, the the swearing to let off steam, ejaculatory swearing. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Okay. So we've got verbal cuddling and ejaculatory swearing. (laughs) And next up is probably my personal fave. Then there's the sort of swearing that uh, I suppose it's just to spice things up. You know, Uh, there was a an ad done here in Australia which was sent out to the rest of the world and fell horribly on its face, but it was a a tourism ad with a uniquely Australian, I think I can say, invitation to the rest of the world, and that was, where the bloody hell are you? You know, (laughs) which was our way of sort of saying, do come to Australia. That's what's sometimes called the great Australian adjective where you would use it a lot to spice up 
you know, what we're saying. And so that's another function of swearing, to give that sort of emotional overlay to make it punchier. Where the bloody hell are you is probably the best tourism tagline ever, Kristen. Right? I mean, I'm booking my ticket right now. (laughs) Uh, But the fourth and final function of swearing seems to get the most public attention, even though, Kate says, it's the least heroic. The uh, insult and uh, abusive language. So this is where you use cuss words to uh, either, you know, to someone or of someone or something that you want to that frustrates you or that you want to downgrade or denigrate in some way. So, yes, that's, that's I suppose, the, the, the dark side of swearing, if I put it that way, because there's plenty of studies to show that swearing is, uh, is quite healthy. You know, swearers might even lead less stressful lives. Okay, so Kate's not kidding about this, Caroline. Uh, There's this one kind of famous study on swearing where participants have to hold their hand in a tub of ice water. And when they were instructed to curse, they were able to hold their hand in the water for longer compared to when they were only allowed to say, like, non-swear words, like pizza or (laughs) swizzle sticks. Pizza always keeps me warm. (laughs) Okay, so if swear words are connected to socializing, less stress, and pain relief, these are all positive things, why do we get so offended by them? Oh, it's, it's their um, link to taboo, uh, the, the things that society just don't want to, to um, you know, uh, confront. So it's interesting, isn't it, because it does require a certain sort of human doublethink. I mean, the fact that you can uh, talk about the female pudendum or you could talk about the vagina, but if you say cunt, then, oh, that raises goose flesh. And so it, it is interesting that uh, that you can use a euphemism and talk about something, but uh, it's, you know, it's as if all of the nastiness were, were in the word itself. That's what makes them so powerful. So it's not the, the referent because we're referring to the same thing all the time, but but it's the actual words themselves. People talk about, they say, you know, cunt, for example, is such a horrible word. A lot of women will say that. Uh, it's, and really, the poor little words, they can't help it. They're just an assemblage of, of vowels and consonants, you know. <laughs> Kate says the words we've considered taboo have changed a lot over the course of history. Like, originally, it was blasphemous words, like religious-based swearing that really got feathers ruffled. Yeah, like bloody, as in Australia's where the bloody hell are you, used to be considered an unprintable word, partly because of its religious association with the blood of Christ. Right. But as the capital C church lost some of its power, so did that religious-based swearing. So instead, we started using physical and sexual-based swear words like most of our four-letter friends today, you know, fuck, shit, dick, the whole gang. <laughs> As for the ladylike no-swearing rule, that developed around the late 1600s, early 1700s, you know, like around the same time as modern gender norms, basically. And any woman who wanted to maintain her marriage market worth and avoid being labeled a prostitute or a low-class working girl, she better keep her language in tow. Meanwhile, well-heeled gentlemen were encouraged to keep any profanity away from the ears of wives and daughters, which really codified this separate sphere of cursing idea. Like, people truly thought that women, well, specifically women of so-called good breeding, just did not curse. And that classist idea was reinforced by quote-unquote research— 
Because the thing is, until the past 30 years or so, studies on women's use of profanity almost exclusively focused on working-class women who were just assumed to have saltier language. There was a study done by Barbara Rich, I think it was in 1987, and her study revealed then that within this sort of subculture of women, there was a, a, I suppose, a treasure trove of dirty words that women would use you know, when they're in same-sex company. And moreover, they were from the middle class. So supposedly the most ladylike of women of all uh, fessed up to using some of these terms. Uh, Even uh, words like whore, bitch and slut, they would use these words of men, which is interesting, Mm. Uh, which because traditionally these have been applied only to females and gay males, of course. Yeah, Rich's study was titled Women's Derogatory Terms for Men. Colon, that's right, dirty words. (laughs) Love it. And it basically demolished this idea that allegedly ladylike bitches stuck with more conservative, polite speech all the time. And Kristen, can I just give you some examples? Oh, please do. Okay, so Rich listed the standard, you know, bastard, asshole, dickhead, bitch. But she also found that these women were using words like bulge head, penis breath, juicy steak, and hard rock. So women were making up like their own derogatory terms Sounds for men. Like it. Ugh, I love it. And I'm probably going to use penis breath <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but Caroline, something Rich notes in her analysis really jumps out. So she writes, the importance of female interviewers for the results of the study cannot be overemphasized. It is doubtful whether any response would have been elicited in the presence of male interviewers, hearkening back to what Kate was just telling us about social swearing and verbal cuddling and how we're likelier to curse up a storm when we are amongst friends, usually same-sex friends. And it is true that for the, like, 300 years or so that modern gender roles have existed, men publicly cursed more frequently than women. But not so anymore. There was this recent study out of Lancaster University in England that found that in the past 25 years, women have been dropping more F-bombs in casual conversation than the dudes. So women's use of the dreaded F-word had increased by something like 500% since the 1990s. Are are we just getting 500% angrier? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it, it's interesting that perhaps, you know, another example of, of just the extraordinary changes that are happening in this area, I don't know whether you're aware of um, those, uh, well, jewellery, for example, that you can buy now, exquisite um, necklaces in gold with fuck you on the necklace and, yes. you know, beautiful, beautiful teacup with slut on it. Um, I think uh, I understand that Dame Judy Dench, while she's, filming um, does extraordinary um, embroidery and they're all full-blown obscenities in these cushions that she embroiders for her friends. Caroline, Judy Dench's embroidery is my new favorite thing. Apparently her needlework usually says stuff like, you are a cunt and like <laughs> gorgeous script. And, and she gives them as little gifts. Yeah, Kristen, I spent like 20 minutes searching just absolutely in vain for actual photographic evidence of this. I'm obsessed with the idea. It's remarkable too, Caroline, that just seeing these words stitched in ultra feminine embroidery is still so striking, you know? Like, it speaks to just how definitively gender norms really divvied up language into power for him and purity for her. Totally. And those profanity power dynamics still resonate with how women swear today. Is it riskier for women to curse in public because of a sexist 
sort of swearing double standard. Yes, certainly that was the case. When I was looking at um, court cases around Australia up until sort of the I think the, the 1980s, it was certainly the case that women were fined more for bad language than than um, than men were. Uh, and, you know, it makes me think of that. There's a beautiful quote, Daniel Defoe, you know, who wrote Robinson Crusoe. Uh-huh. What did he say? He said, God, God damn you, does not sit well upon a female tongue. He said, <laughs> it seems to be a masculine vice. But Caroline, as Kate's already established, swearing isn't a masculine vice these days. That said, our vocabulary of swear words still pays an awful lot of attention to female bodies. Well, for a start, there are many, many more expressions um, to do with um, vagina. Uh, There are, in fact, 1,200, could you believe it, expressions for the female body part, the body body part. You know, there are 2,000 expressions to refer to women in a sexually derogatory way. That is extraordinary lexical richness. There aren't anywhere near the same number of expressions to refer to males in that way, and certainly they're not nearly as negative. I remember, I think it was um, Margaret Atwood said uh, something about, you know, work by a male writer is often said as you described as having balls, but you don't talk about work by a woman as having tits. You know, <laughs> there's that kind of at all. <laughs> Caroline, can we please make work having tits happen? (laughs) Yes, yeah, absolutely. You wrote that of the taboo terms for bodily functions, sex and private parts, cunt remains the most disturbing and the most powerful. Why is that? I think the taboos, given that these words, you know, are so linked to taboo and the taboos around women and women's bodies have always been greater and so that's why you get this, um, you know, the power attached to these words. And, and uh, you know, just those insults I mentioned earlier. So if you compare a term like prick to a t- term like cunt, I mean, prick, the terms for male um, body parts tend to um, suggest uh, stupidity, you know, um, maybe contemptibleness, if that's a word, uh, whereas, you know, cunt, it's, it's nasty, it's malicious, it's despicable, much more powerful. So when, though, did cunt become so taboo because it wasn't always considered a four-letter word, to put it euphemistically. No, no. And if you read, well, the the sort of medical books that I was looking at when I first started my research on word order, um, the medical texts from the Middle Ages, um, cunt was there regularly as the normal term for the body part. But with the rise of sexually-based swearing, like we mentioned earlier, dictionary dudes got more squeamish about defining or even including words related to the female pedendum. So, Kate says that starting in the 1700s, cunt would either be left out of dictionaries entirely or just referenced in euphemisms, including my favorite, the monosyllable. (laughs) And of course, like, once you're using euphemism, you're essentially insinuating that the actual word is too impolite or crude to say it all. I've got a dictionary of the vulgar tongue from 1785. Uh, It has it in there, but with asterisks and dashes. The lexicographer's name was Captain Francis Gross. Uh, His definition was a nasty Nasty term for a nasty thing, I think he calls it. That's all. That's Uh, rude. (laughs) Isn't it rude? Very rude. Yes, indeed. And, you know, this is where you get um, even the word for rabbit in English, which was the word cunny 
and of course um, that uh, smacked a little too much of the body parts, so that disappeared. We no longer call rabbits cunnies. Such was the power of that word, the dreaded C word, that it actually bumped off innocent bystanders, you know, innocent vocabulary that just happens to sound the same. I honestly cannot believe that's how we got the word bunny. Like, from being afraid to call a rabbit something that sounded too much like cunt. That's right. So let's just call a cunny a cunny and get over the controversy. You mean the controversy? <laughs> so do you think that uh, women should embrace more swearing? Is it time for us to get over this unladylike uh, stereotype around <laughs> swearing? <laughs> Well, well, I think, you know, freedom is freedom from euphemism. So, yes, uh, and uh, breaking taboos does give, you know, is, is a, gives you a bit of power, most certainly. When we come back, we're talking to a babe with the power. What power? The power of profanity. Oh, that's not the labyrinth rhyme, Caroline. No, I, but I think it is now. <laughs> Stick around. We're back, swearing like sailors on a quest to find out why the good golly gosh, it's still considered so unladylike. And Kristen, what do we know so far? Well, thanks to Professor Kate, we know that swearing feels good. We know that women give plenty of fucks. And that cunt was a totally non-offensive word until men made it dirty. Assholes. Seriously, though, considering the power dynamics of swearing and how patriarchy has monopolized it, we wanted to talk to a feminist who's exploring the potential of profanity to grab some power back. Hi, my name is Mona Altahawi, and I begin all my talks with my declaration of faith, fuck the patriarchy. Mona El-Tahawi is an Egyptian-American activist and public speaker, and that line she just gave is literally how she opens Every single talk that she gives. Yeah, from a literature festival in Nigeria to a panel discussion on feminism in Pakistan to academic conferences in the U.S. You've written, and I quote, In my experience, almost nothing can match the power of profanity delivered by a woman at a podium. So, Mona, why is that? First of all, people expect everyone on a podium to be very polite. And that expectation is especially so for women. And I think it's it's rarer for women to be on a podium than, than for men. It's even rarer for women of color. So that podium is obviously a place of power. And from that place of power, you're supposed to kind of revere it and be on your best behavior. And I don't really understand why that is the case. Because for me, to be powerful enough to stand on that podium surely should mean that you're powerful enough to say what you want. Mona says she likes the fact that calling it a declaration of faith sets up this expectation that she's about to deliver the literal shahada, the declaration that, you know, there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. But instead, she drops an F-bomb. She also writes about that declaration of faith in her upcoming book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. And one of those necessary sins is profanity. Mona thinks about gender and swearing a lot. She's even started a hashtag on Twitter, Why I Say Fuck. She got the idea for the hashtag after an encounter with one of her editors. Mona wrote op-eds for this dude, and one day, he called her in. 
he wanted me to stop saying I don't give a flying fuck on Twitter and to <laughs> cut down my usage of fuck on Twitter. And I was like, what? <laughs> Have they ever spent time on Twitter? <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, first of all, exactly, like 95% of my time on Twitter is saying fuck. And, <laughs> and then I was just, I was stunned because I'm not an employee of that publication. So the fact that that editor thought that they could demand this of me was just stunning. And, and, and I said, why, why, first of all, I don't work for you, but why? And they said, well, it's not something that we want to be associated with. And we feel that words like that and phrases like that, um, just end the conversation. It's like civility, you know, it's like, if you know, mm. civility is for the sake of continuing the conversation, blah, 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 blah. And it was, it was ironic and horrendous and just so, uh, such an indication of how oblivious these powerful men are to what it's like to be a woman, to be a woman of color, to be a woman of Muslim descent, to be a woman on social media, to be a woman out there in the world today contending with all this fuckery that they thought they could say this to me. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. After that meeting with the editor, Mona took to her favorite format and started hashtag why I say fuck. And it took off. Soon, Mona was hearing from women all over the world, responding with things like, I grew up in an authoritarian, fundamentalist environment. Swearing as a girl would get me shamed. Swearing now reminds me I'm free. One of my favorite tweets, Caroline, was because why use hundreds of words when fuck is a noun, verb, adjective, adverb, pronoun, and the best interjection? Or how about, it confuses abled's who think disabled people are all cherubic and quiet. One of my favorites was this woman said when she was about 11 or 12, but she, she got home from school and she saw her mum using a frying pan. She just, she was smashing a frying pan on a countertop in the kitchen and say, and going, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> and they made eye contact and her mum just looked at her and she said to her, sometimes you've just got to say fuck. Um, another sort of moving instance of it was a woman who wrote and told me that as a working class woman, it's very difficult for me to be as openly profane as I want to be because I get especially judged for it. And it seems like a, a just general theme is women being fed up. Yes, absolutely fed up. Women being fed up of this straitjacket of niceness and politeness that patriarchy imposes on us. And then we recognize that, you know, what the fuck do we get out of this being nice and being polite? Fuck nice. Fuck being polite. Because they truly are straitjackets. And we not only do we must we throw off this straitjacket, we must also insist on showing that the violence of patriarchy is much more profane than the language that we use to express how utterly fed up we are with patriarchy and its attendant oppressions. Mona envisions patriarchy as the head of an octopus with lots of intersecting tentacles. Tentacles like racism, homophobia, misogyny, transphobia. And her life's mission is to bring the whole beast down, regardless of how many F-bombs or whatever other taboo language it takes. It's a mission partly inspired by one of her heroes, a woman named Stella Nianzi. Stella is an epidemiologist and queer studies professor in Uganda. She's launched campaigns uh, around uh, period poverty to collect uh, sanitary um, hygiene, menstrual hygiene products. She's just an incredible feminist. 
an incredible feminist who was arrested back in 2017 for calling the Ugandan president slash dictator, Yawari Museveni, quote, a pair of buttocks. He had promised that he was going to provide um, free sanitary napkins to schoolgirls in Uganda. And he reneged on that promise soon after he was elected. So Stella Nyanzi took to Facebook and called him out on it and called him a pair of buttocks. She was arrested and she was supposed to stand trial, but after six weeks, she was released. And in an interview with um, the Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail, she expressed beautifully why she thinks that profanity is so powerful. She said, look, I don't have weapons. I don't have guns. I don't have grenades. I don't have tanks. I do have the soft ammunition, basically, she calls it soft ammunition of profanity. Stella calls this radical rudeness, which is this incredible Ugandan tradition that stems from activists back in the 1940s fighting colonial powers. So instead of staging an uprising, the activists developed another approach. Activists began to be intentionally radically rude by acts of civil disobedience, by turning down invitations, uh, by going to places that had their own kind of uh, rules of civility and decorum and being intentionally indecorous and being intentionally uncivil and radically rude. And I, you know, I think that is so powerful that you tell the powers that be, just like Selenianzi is doing today, that you might have all the weapons, you might have the power today, but I'm going to use what I own, which is my words and my behavior to unsettle you, to discomfort you. And uh, it's kind of like the best and most beautiful example of civil disobedience. Stella Nianzi is still putting her radical rudeness to work. She was arrested again last fall, unfairly imprisoned, and is being put on trial for another so-called offensive thing she wrote to Museveni. She wrote a poem for him in which she, she wished that his late mother's vaginal canal had poisoned him during delivery so that he was dead on birth, and that would have saved Uganda his basically existence. And so she's on trial for causing offense to the president and his late mother. The power of radical rudeness is real, y'all. Even if you live in a democracy and, you know, want to impeach the motherfucker in office. We're with Mona and flexing our feminist fucks when we come back. We're back with Mona El-Tahawi, author of the forthcoming book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. We've established that gender's a bitch when it comes to swearing. And studies back up all that double standard bullshit. Specifically, women are judged to be overly emotional and less likable compared to dudes when they use profanity. Other researches found that when men are the ones cursing, it's seen as a sign of honesty and sincerity. And we have witnessed this in real time in politics lately. Take, for instance, Beto O'Rourke hmm. dropping F-bombs in his concession speech. And the headlines around that say that it made him seem cooler and more authentic. However, when Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib dared to suggest that we ought to impeach the motherfucker in the White House, um, Americans kind of collectively lost their shit. 
yeah, that that is a great example because you know it again. It's a reminder that that patriarchy is more upset and insists that we be more upset about profanity used by women than than the harms that it visits upon women. So when Rashida Talib said impeach the motherfucker, even though it was in a private gathering of her friends, because it wasn't in, you know, in the Congress, which is where all these right. rules of the quorum are, it was in a private gathering. It was like, my God, it was like she had destroyed the world. And, you know, yes, of course, we we have to insist on saying she's talking about impeaching a man who is a fascist, racist, misogynist, homophobe, transphobe, Islamophobe, all of this. That is Donald Trump, who's been accused by more than a dozen women of sexual assault, who's separated families at the border and, and taken children away who'll never be reunited with their families. So we can do all of this kind of stacking up the crimes. But I don't even want to stack up the crimes. I want to say that it is absolutely her right to call this man whatever she wants. It is her right to use the powerful language that she insists upon. And when we see the way that men use um, use violence, not just of language, but of action, and get away with it, we have to say this is misogyny at work, this is racism at work, and this is Islamophobia at work. And all of those isms, for me, are much more profane than the word motherfucker coming from Rashida Talib. Right. And also the, um, I don't know, selective memory people seem to have about all of the profanity that the president uses on a regular basis, Um, you know, dropping like bullshit, uh, shithole countries, like things constantly. And at the same time, (laughs) <laughs> the double standard of, oh, well, you know, him getting the pass of like, oh, well, he's just he's just, you know, telling stories. He's just being loose. Whereas if a woman, you know, and a woman of color on top of that dares to drop profanity, we should take it seriously. It is a harbinger of, you know, all of these terrible things that must be mm-hmm. to come. Absolutely. See, this is why I included profanity as one of as one of the seven necessary sins in my book, because, you know, like anger, like attention seeking, like lust, like violence, like power, like ambition, you know, all the the other sins in my book. These are things that women are not allowed to want or to have or to do or to want to be. These are things that patriarchy has given men and has given a very specific type of man, you know, and these are kind of like very privileged, most often, you know, depending on where you live, but in the United States, these are white, wealthy, heterosexual men. And those men, it's like those things are natural for them to want to do and to be. But for women, and and again, for more, for the women and the more kind of oppressions between which you fall, you know, the more tentacles you are um, strangled by as a woman, the less ability or the, the the fewer rights you have to be all of those things. So for someone like Rashida Tlaib, a progressive Muslim woman of color in the public eye, she's got a lot of tentacles to contend with. You know, and Mona says she appreciates how both Tlaib and Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar are really complicating the stereotype of quiet, submissive Muslim women, even if it upsets a lot of folks in the process. But Kristen... It's not only in politics where we see this pearl-clutching double standard around cursing. Cardi B, for example, who is wonderfully profane. I love the way that Cardi will just get on a video and start saying, 
Hey, Mr. IRS, where the fuck are my tax dollars going? What the fuck are you doing with my tax dollars? What is y'all doing with my fucking money? I want to know. I want receipts. I want everything. I want to know what y'all niggas doing with my fucking money. What is y'all niggas doing with my fucking money? Uncle Sam, I want to know what the fuck you're doing with my motherfucking money. And, you know, people look at Cardi B and, first of all, she, she has forced herself on people's consciousness. She has forced people to take her seriously. She says, you know what? Yes, I was a motherfucking stripper because that's how she she often refers to it. Mm-hmm. And she will brook no shame whatsoever for it. And it's like, good for you, Cardi. And, you know, people try to blame or to excuse her profanity on the fact that this is the background that she comes from. But I insist that we look at it and and, and see Cardi's profanity as an incredible feminist ownership of her body, of the work that she used to do, and of the success and the power that she has now. And I salute Cardi for that. So there is... One wrinkle, one last wrinkle that I want to ask about, which is um, what do we do about women policing profanity in the sense of um, I hear a lot of times, you know, I'm a white woman and white women are the first ones to take down women of color, like in the Cardi B uh, example, saying, oh, well, her profanity reflects this, that and the other. And that's just not a good example. What do you think is is the best way to address that dynamic? I think many things are at play because yes, I, I, I've experienced that policing by women. I mean, one one example is um, very soon after I came back to the U.S. with two broken arms after I'd been assaulted in Egypt in November of 2011 by Egyptian riot police. They broke both my arms and sexually assaulted me. My arms were literally in a cast. Each arm was in a cast. And this uh, Muslim American woman who had invited me to speak at various conferences, she came up to me and she said, Mona, you know, um, there are so many people in our community, our community now is supposed to be the American Muslim community, who, who would be more likely to listen to you if you didn't say fuck so often. Mona was astounded in this moment. Like, was her language really the issue here? Wasn't the violence she'd been subjected to more profane? Yeah, but I mean, privileged women gonna privilege. Welcome to the patriarchy. So when you internalize that misogyny, when you internalize those lessons, and you then turn around and police other women, you think that you will be protected from kind of like the the ravages of that patriarchy. And the more privilege you have have as a woman, the more you end up doing that. And, And that's why we often find white women in the case of the United States doing it, because white women are the most often the ones who are foot soldiers of the patriarchy, because their whiteness puts them adjacent to that power of white supremacy in the United States. And and that kind of dynamic exists in every community. And that's why I also mentioned the the American Muslim woman who was policing my language, because in our community, she's given power in the same way in the United States at large, white women are given power by white supremacy. Well, Kristen, what if we were to swap out that tainted power for some patriarchy-smashing profanity? Well, that's exactly what Mona has in mind. You wrote, let's teach all our girls to say fuck, loudly, proudly, unfiltered, and uncensored. What would it mean for our world and our daily lives, do you think, if we did accomplish that? If we got 
all our girls to say fuck loudly and proudly and uncensored, we would have a world in which we would focus on the truly profane. And that would be misogyny, white supremacy, capitalism, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, bigotry of all kinds, all those things that truly harm us, depending on where on this hierarchy and 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 in between which of patriarchy's tentacles we are strangled and suffocated. If we really focused on where all of those crimes are being uh, are coming from and where that power lies, we would not be upset at fuck. We would instead be upset at patriarchy and the violence that it allows on a daily basis against us. In other words, we shouldn't let that straight jacket of niceness, as Mona put it earlier, hold us back from speaking truth to power, profanity included. Totally. Because it's not like patriarchy has ever been precious about the language it's promoted to devalue and debase our bodies and beings. The scales are like fucking upside down, aren't they? It's and so you know that that just makes me want to go out there and say fuck even more. So I think that you should you should insist that all your guests at the end say fuck loudly, proudly, and uncensored. Caroline, to that I say, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, Kristen. <laughs> Also, speaking of profanity, we should update y'all on Stella Nianzi's legal battles over her radical rudeness. Yeah, so after four months in jail for cyber harassment and offensive communication over that poem she wrote, her trial finally got underway March 21st. And it's basically a test case for new laws about online freedom of expression in Uganda. And regardless of that trial's outcome, it's pretty clear that using cursing to punch up can have some serious power precisely because of how unladylike swearing remains. So we want to know, what do y'all think? Can cursing truly set us free? Email us at hello at unladylike.co, hit us up on social at unladylike media, or join the conversation in our Facebook group. And y'all, do not forget about our pep talks. Sign up for Stitcher Premium now to get the first one tomorrow. Go to stitcher.com slash premium and use code unladylike for a month of free listening. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor, and Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattle at Mast. Special thanks to Kate Kelly for connecting us with Mona. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week... We're getting down and dirty. Oh, I hope this date goes really well. Like, you know, I have so much stress. I'm trying to get laid. And I'm just like, you can't be asking the Venus for that. And I was like, you need, like, your own saint that gets it, that is down with this. Like, she's a dirty girl. And so we came up with Saint Susia, and it was a joke. We're diving into the world of DIY and zines with the creators of the amazing Latina-focused zine, Saint Susia. Don't miss this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. So one of my favorite words, for example, is the word furky toodling which is a word for foreplay. It was early English word for foreplay, which I think is so beautiful, don't you? Yes. Furky toodling. Can't wait to use that. Stitcher.
I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.